He picked up the phone. I said, I miss home. No pleasantries, no hello, just I miss home. I don't want to be here. Ten years later, almost to the day, I looked into the eyes of my wife and said, I don't want to be here. I miss home. No explanation needed. She knew I was struggling with that city, that job, that everything. There have been times in my life where my soul vomits, and the only thing that comes up is, I miss home. Have you ever been there? The military sends you to a new post. It's nothing like home. You're from Texas. The food was so good. Texas brisket. Legit Tex-Mex. But Clarksville is allergic to good quality food. You can't find it anywhere. It's all fast food chains. Uh, some of you came from Cali or Colorado or Hawaii. And now you're at Fort Campbell. And the scenery just isn't the same. Maybe you came from the Northeast, and you just don't like people in the South. I mean, it's hey, Shug, and bless your heart, and, and if you hear one more country song, you may just explode. <laughs> when my wife moved to the States from Canada, Southerners would often ask her, you're from Canada. Did you live in an igloo? <laughs> she was uh, not used to our intelligence. The, the food is different, the scenery is different, the people are different. You don't have friends here. You don't have a support system here. You're lonely. You don't like it. And you want to go back home. We have a little under 100 people in our church that have or will move away this summer. This picking up and moving away from home is a common experience for them every three years. Perhaps you took a job and it required you to move far away from home. You had to relocate in order to get that manager's job, start that medical practice, snag that engineering position. You moved everything to get the job. And now, you hate the job. It's not what you thought it would be. Usually there's at least a honeymoon period, but you didn't even experience that. You're miserable at your job. You miss the no real responsibility of your old job, the easiness, the, the clock in and clock out nature of it. You want to go back home. Perhaps you moved in retirement, maybe to be close to kids or grandkids. You moved 4,000 miles away. Every day feels like a rainy day. You're blue. You miss the marble countertops of your old home. You miss the bonus room the neighbors, the subdivision. You want to go back home. Or perhaps it's your first night of college and more than anything you want to escape. You would give anything for that old room, that warm, comfy bed and that ugly old couch where you'd sit and watch movies for hours. Sarah and I asked our daughter Everly where she wanted to go to college. She said, far away. Maybe California, which is the opposite of one of our boys who, who wanted to be a Texas game warden. But then Sarah said, you, you have to move to Texas. And he said, well, never mind. I'll find something else. <laughs> we asked him if he would ever move to a big city. He said, Mom, 
I'm just a small town USA guy. <laughs> Even on vacation, he will say, I'm ready to go back home. Perhaps you're newly married and moved 1,000 miles away to be with your new spouse. And you miss mom's home cooking, the Sunday dinners, the Friday night football games. Stress and anxiety are common feelings when you're homesick. Perhaps you're a refugee. Or this isn't your native country. Some of you are from Liberia, Brazil, Nigeria, Korea, the Philippines. And the culture is so different here. You can speak English, but it's not like your home language. You'd give anything to hear something, anything in your native tongue. You're, you're awakened in the night with sobs of grief. You miss home. Not only did God know that you would experience that longing for home, God created that ache within your soul. The ache for home doesn't mean something is wrong with you. It means you're human. God designed you to long for home. I'll prove it. In the garden, Adam and Eve knew the comfort of home. They were at home with each other, at home with the weather, at home with animals, at home with God. It didn't stay that way. They grew tired of home. They took home for granted. They sinned by eating food that you could say wasn't home cooking. At that moment, sin entered into the bloodstream of humanity. They would have to leave, leave home. They packed their bags, threw it over their shoulders, and with heads down, walked away from home. The moment they stepped foot out of the garden, they longed for home. Their feet left, but their heart remained. God's last words to them were, you have to leave. You have to go far away from home. But I will send someone to bring you back. And that was the history of God's people throughout the ages. They were in Egypt, far away from home. They wandered in the desert, far away from home. They went into Babylonian captivity, far away from home. Yet, they always longed for home. Wherever they went, whomever they became, they always had home instilled within them. Time away from home was painful, but also priceless. They needed it. God used it to sanctify them, to create greater longings for home in them. You know why dogs whimper, birds migrate, and fish dart? Because they're looking for home. A man in our church told me this week that he was in so much pain, he prayed. God, just take me home. Last week in our closing prayer, we prayed, Lord, take us home. He didn't. 
we're still here. So this week in our text, we find instruction on how to live when we are far away from home. Two truths, a theology for living far away from home, an ethic for living far away from home. First, a theology for living far away from home. How do you cope with being away from home? You can try to distract yourself with fun activities. You can wallow in the mire. When you're far away from home, the only thing that will sustain you is a deep theology. I do not know what you will face, but I know you need a theology to face it. Peter, the human author, lived in the first century. He grew up in this little hillbilly town of Galilee. He was a small town guy, a small lake guy. Most historians say all people living in this backwater area had a unique accent. They were sometimes called redneck Galileans. And this small town guy writes in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Let's stop there. We find in this short statement a theology for living far from home. I'll give you the theology before I unpack it. Who you are in Christ and who you are in the world. Who you are in Christ, beloved. Who you are in the world, sojourners and exiles. Who you are in Christ. All throughout the letter, Peter has been telling this people, you are called, you are chosen, you are elect, you are my people. He summarizes all the previous material into this title. Beloved. Many voices clamor relentlessly to define you. And you must hear only one voice, his voice. You used to be dead in your sins. You used to be apart from God, separated, without hope, without forgiveness, estranged, alienated. But now you are beloved. You have been redeemed by the precious, sinless blood of Christ. And in him you are beloved. May God's name for you trump and mute other names which have been branded on you through the years. Tramp. Loose. Stupid. Ignorant. Worthless. Incompetent. As you right now sit far away from home, you hear his voice. You are beloved. When God looks down at you, he says, you are cherished, you are favored, you are special. Non-Christian, you can't work your way into the beloved. No, you're called into the beloved. If you have this intense desire right now to repent of your sin and trust Christ, you didn't create that. That's God gifting you that desire. Run to Christ. Christian, God says to you, you are far away from home, but you still belong to me. Never forget that. Who you are in Christ, beloved, who you are in the world, sojourners. 
Peter's early readers were spread across the rugged, isolated terrain of modern-day Turkey. He says, I want you to know that while you're in this region, you're a sojourner. This word means that, that you're a long-term resident, but you were not born where you're now living. The word sojourner literally is translated alien. Not E.T. phone home alien or, or the movie Aliens, but someone living in a foreign country. The word sojourner, woodenly translated, says alongside the house. In other words, you're not in the house. It's, it's not really your house. It's referring to people in a place that isn't their true home. Sojourners and exiles. This, of course, is echoing back to God's people in Israel who were constantly in exile. Peter wants these readers to view themselves like Israel in Babylonian exile. Christians in this world are like Jewish exiles in Babylonian captivity. And he wants you to have a, a grid to view life that way. Both these terms... Sojourners and exiles suggest that believers belong elsewhere. And this is nothing new. Peter is not giving these churches new information. They knew this. They had their Old Testament. They knew Abraham said we travel through life as sojourners and exiles. Church, you must know who you are in Christ and who you are in the world. You are a sojourner a visitor making a brief stay. Your life should show a certain detachment to this world. We live here in tents, not castles. This is temporary. God is saying through this human author, I'm going to bring you home. Just like I told Adam and Eve, I'm going to bring you home. You will not always be far from home. Those of you who are non-Christians, I understand. I understand why you are putting all of your hopes and dreams into building your forever home, enjoying your fun city and chasing after your perfect job. I understand because this is your home. You need to understand that we relate to the world in a completely different way. This is not our home. We are just passing through. This world doesn't have to fully satisfy us. We may work jobs that we don't love, live in cities that we don't adore, and eat bland food because this is not our home. Peter loved his backwater area of Galilee, but he knew God may place him in a big city. That's okay because this isn't permanent. A theology for living far away from home. Secondly, an ethic for living far away from home. Peter is about to get really personal and really ethical. Whenever you see ethical commands in the New Testament, you must always view them in light of the whole book. Peter grounds his ethics in the gospel. Don't get it twisted. You're not earning the Father's favor by your behavior. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. 
You don't reach for holiness because God has a club ready to clobber you if you don't. We reach for holiness because at conversion, God has given us new affections and new desires. All these ethical commands I'm about to unpack are rooted in the gospel. The gospel transforms your ethics. He's not giving you a list of things to work for your salvation. He's giving you a list of things that work from your salvation. Peter's no legalist. He's a gospelist. We have instruction here on how to live out our strangerliness. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Abstain. Stephen Davey points out that the verb abstain means to hold oneself away from. It implies a struggle. It's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing activity. In other words, pursuing holiness will always involve an ongoing activity of restraint. Practical holiness is the art of saying no. There are impulses of your flesh that happen all throughout the day and you must abstain from acting on them. You cannot flirt with them. You, you must keep yourself away from them. There were activities you participated in when you were at home in this world, but you are no longer at home in this world. Those who have the Spirit are not exempt from carnal appetites. Interestingly, Plato, uh, not the kid's toy, but the philosopher, Plato was the first to bring these three words together. Abstain, passions, and soul. Plato, long before Peter, said, abstain from all fleshly lusts and hold out against them if you have any care for your own soul. Plato tried to do this without the gospel, without the God of the gospel, and he failed. And you will do the same if you attempt without the transforming power of the gospel. Let's pick it up. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The fight is within you, not around you. Wage war is a strong term that generally means to carry out a long military campaign. There's an army of lustful terrorists on a search and destroy mission to conquer your soul. You're a high-level target. Your soul is a high-level target. Let's not treat temptation lightly. Sin never sleeps. The app developers for your phone, the engineers behind Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, they are not thinking, how can I nurture people's passion for God? The 17th century English Puritan, John Flavel. I call him Flavor Flav. John, uh, John Flavel spoke these penetrating words. To keep holy control over thy thoughts, to have all things lie straight and orderly in the heart, is constant work. The keeping of the heart is a work that is never done until life is ended. And I love this truth. 
where he writes, there is no time in the life of a Christian which will allow an intermission in this work. For the rest of your earthly life, you will have to work on abstaining. Abstain and then keep. Notice verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Abstain, that's negative. Keep, that's positive. Uh, Peter's exhortation is twofold. Stated first in the negative, abstain from fleshly passions. And then in the positive, keep your conduct honorable. God desires for you to live honorably among the non-believing world. We aim to engage our culture by first speaking the gospel and then by living this gospel. He speaks about good deeds in this verse. The Greek word for good could be translated beautiful. We must live beautiful lives while among the pagans. Beautiful conduct springs from a soul that prizes Christ as beautiful. It continues in verse 12. So that when they speak against you, notice, not if, but when, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good, this is beautiful, deeds. Peter is assuming and guaranteeing that these Christians will be slandered. Historians tell us, historians tell us that these scattered Christians were accused of hurting businesses because they refused to buy idols. Incest because they called each other brother and sister. Cannibalism, because they took the bread and cup. Atheism, because they rejected the pantheon of gods and goddesses, and instead they worshipped a dead man. Tacitus, a Roman senator from the first century, revealed how Christians were coming to be profiled in that culture. He said they were viewed with suspicion and hostility holding secret meetings on Sunday. Peter says, live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. You must live so well that the pagan can make no valid accusation. Verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now I've read quite a few scholars just on this verse because it's so confusing. I've read John Piper, J. Mack, Tom Schreiner, Tony Morita, R.C. Sproul, and about a dozen other theologians. None of them would give a 100% definite stance on this, and I can't either, but I can tell you what I think it means using the best hermeneutical principles. The day of visitation is an Old Testament concept the Old Testament records several instances in which God visited his people for either blessing or judgment. You can continue that to the New Testament. When Jesus came in a manger, he visited his people. When Jesus comes back in his second coming, that's the visitation that this text speaks of. There will be converted ones who used to slander God's people but now glorify God. Peter seems confident that some non-Christians will be saved when they notice the godliness of Christians. Now, there's general consensus that that's what this verse means. 
If so, God isn't just interested in us developing a good reputation. He's interested, interested in a gospel reformation. A gospel from the lips and a gospel from the life. In the summer of 1805, a number of Native American chiefs and warriors met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York to hear a presentation of the Christian gospel by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. Once it was over, one of the Native Americans said, and I quote, Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less inclined to cheat Native Americans, we will then consider it again what you have said. End quote. Abstain, keep, obey. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Let's just stop it there. This phrase, the, this, this phrase, be subject, be subject for the Lord's sake, hupotasso, is a military expression literally meaning to arrange in formation under a commander, to get in rank and file. Soldiers might not like their orders. They may not agree with their commander, but they subject. Peter tells these Christians that that's what they should do in the Roman Empire. This instruction is a command for all believers living under all forms of government, from dictatorships to democracies. Peter's not writing to a perfect political climate. It was more like North Korea and less like the United States. The liberties that we enjoy would have been unthinkable for Peter. It's estimated that one-third of all Christians live in some form of civil freedom, while the vast majority, more than two-thirds, live in some sort of repressive government. The Lord knew that when he inspired this text. If this command applied to God's people in Rome, then it also applies to brothers and sisters in North Korea, Sudan, Iran, and most certainly applies to you in the United States. Why do we despise submitting to governmental institutions? They say, I don't. You're, you're a liar. <laughs> I do. Why do we despise submitting to governmental institutions? I think there's three reasons. There's a theological reason, there's a national reason, and there's a philosophical reason. The theological reason. Why do we despise submitting to governmental institutions? Because we are sons of Adam and Eve. We want to do our own thing. That's just not for people in Texas. That's us as well. And let's do a heart check for a minute. Could it be that your problem with submitting to governmental authorities is really just a problem with authority in general? You don't like anyone telling you what to do? including God. It's a theological reason, but then there's a national reason. We are Americans. Ask the British how we like submitting to authority. 
We don't like their king or their tea. We, we do have a spirit of anti-authoritarian rebellion in, in our society. It's just built in. Theological reason, national reason, thirdly, philosophical reason. Some of us were abused by authorities. We've seen government overreach, abuse of power. So submit to every human institution. Hey, you may be thinking, I know Kyle's about to get to those exception clauses. <laughs> Obey government unless this happens or that happens. And you are right. You know me well. I'm going to get there. But what is it in you that can't wait for me to get there? Here's why we need this text. Many pastors do not want to touch civil obedience with a 10-foot pole. In fact, I read quite a few respected pastors this week that made this passage about civil disobedience. And I'm reading going, would you please honor the author's intent? This isn't about civil disobedience. It's about civil obedience. Submit to every human institution. That means building codes. If the law requires a certain number of exits or fire extinguishers or emergency lights, the church must comply. On one occasion, Jesus was asked if he was going to pay his taxes. He effectively said, yes. Well, well Kyle, I... Mm, God, I don't agree with the policy of underage drinking. I'm old enough to die for my country, but not to drink a margarita. Submit. We've all seen some overzealous saints who disgrace the name of the Lord by their attitude and actions relating to some of these matters. They can't tell us what to preach, but they can tell us to obey fire codes. We're not some maverick group doing as we please. By the way, change your understanding of authority. Some of you think authority came after the fall in the garden, that authority was the result of sin. No. There is authority among the sinless angels. 1 Thessalonians 4, Jude 9. There is authority among the redeemed in heaven. Luke 19, 1 Corinthians 6. Peter continues in the verse, submit to the emperor as supreme. <laughs> well, that's fine for Peter. But surely God would not have me to submit to my emperor. He's incompetent. He's a scumbag. Well, hold on there, freedom fighter. Peter is telling these Christians to submit to their emperor. Who was that? Nero, <laughs> the man who was growing increasingly insane. The man who would tie a horse to each limb of a person, whip the horses so they would run in four different directions. Now, who is the emperor for us? In an African village, this would be the chief. In a communist country, this would be the chairman. In a democratic republic, this would be the president or prime minister. For the believers reading this letter, it was Nero. Submit yourselves. Which means it doesn't matter if you elected him or not. These people certainly didn't elect Nero. He continues, verse 14, Submit to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, who were some of the governors in this day? Maybe some of the names ring a bell for you. Pontius Pilate, 
Felix. We know what these men did to Jesus Christ. Governors could be an array of local authorities or lesser magistrates. They were commissioned by and under the authority of the emperor and are to be obeyed as his representatives. The authorities in our local context could be police officers, governors, Supreme Court judges. These leaders for us do what governors did for them. They defend a nation's borders, build roads, and promote public order. The point of Peter listing two different levels of authority is to show that you should show respect to authorities, whatever their level. Why? What do they do? The text tells us, punish evil. The government has been given that right to bear the sword and punish lawbreakers. Therefore, believers must never engage in acts of vigilante justice. John Piper notes, the proper aim of government is to dam up the river of evil that flows from the heart of man so that it does not flood the world with anarchy. God had his reasons for ordaining government. One is to punish evil. The other is to, notice what the text says, praise good. In this day, governing authorities were accustomed to expressing such praise in the form of statues, inscriptions, crowns, or grants of money to those who had, in one way or another, benefited the community. Peter now explains why you should submit, arguing that you should do so because, verse 15, this is the will of God. God never envisioned governmental structures always siding with believers or always commending them for their good behavior. Verse 15 continues, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The word silence in the Greek is literally to gag or to muzzle. You, you muzzle the pagan critics with good works and subjection. It's, it's almost like they're a pack of yelping, snapping dogs. But their good works muzzled them. I skipped one phrase. Not sure if you noticed. Actually, I, I know our church. I know you noticed. And I would have received an email about it later. It, you, you submit for the Lord's sake. When you submit, you are worshiping God. The Lord's sake. That's a key phrase. If you miss that, you miss the most important thing. There is a kind of allegiance to human institution, to human institutions that is not for the Lord's sake. And that is not what Peter is interested in. These institutions are part of what we call common grace institutions. Left by God, even in a fallen world, to keep order. Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says, almost any government... It's better than no government. Lack of human authority combined with the human tendency to sin is always a recipe for anarchy. You subject yourselves because you recognize their role in God's world. Now let's get to what we Americans were made for. The exceptions. When to rebel. <laughs> Peter doesn't give you the exceptions. Maybe I shouldn't either. But I got a little Texas in me. When the, when the government prohibits us from doing what the Lord commands, 
or commands us to do what the Lord prohibits, we do not submit. We find all throughout Scripture God's people far from home submitting to their emperor and their government when it's not conflicting with their God. But when it conflicts, the Egyptian midwives rightly disobey Pharaoh. The three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow. Daniel faithfully prays when it's illegal. Peter and John stand defiant in the face of wicked authority and say, we will preach the gospel. Unless the government is directing us to disobey God, then we submit to them. And the minute that changes, we out. If, if there is ever a conflict between human authority and, and heavenly authority, we must choose to obey God over man. Let me just make it real awkward in here. If President Biden asks us to do something that isn't unholy or unlawful, we obey. If a police officer asks us to do something that isn't unholy or unlawful, we obey. In Scripture, the believer's submission to human authorities is never blind obedience. It's never blind obedience. Right now, as Peter writes, these people are, are submitting to annoying things, but not sinful things. But the day is coming when we know this. We know this because we've read their history. The day is coming when it's treasonous not to recognize Caesar as divinity. And all of the people who are submitting to everything else will not submit to that. And many will face death because of it. Let's move on. Because that's uncomfortable. Abstain. Keep. Obey, live. Verse 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter tells these Christians, no matter how it feels, you're actually free. No matter how restrictive or repressive the government, you are free in Christ. Imagine someone, in a, imagine someone in North Korea. Imagine someone in a concentration camp right now hearing that. Never use your freedom to run wild. You're not licentious. That's anti-gospel. What this verse teaches us is that we may be far away from home, but we belong to God, not the Roman Empire or the American government. Verse 17. Honor Everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Four commands here. The outer commands are cooler, the inner commands are warmer. Let's take them one at a time. Honor everyone. Treat everyone with honor and dignity. Show respect to every human being. Why? Why? Because we believe that every human being has been created in the image of God. The Imago Dei propels us to honor every human being. That includes your critics, your political rivals. That even includes Duke's Coach K. We honor everyone. Honor everyone. So keep that in mind when you're Twittering and blogging and commenting on social media. 
Secondly, love the brotherhood. Love your church deeply. My wife and I were sitting on our front porch Thursday night after the kids went to bed. And we were talking about what we wanted to instill in our children. And one of the things she said was, I want to teach them to value the local church, to love the local church, to submit to a local church, to welcome accountability from the local church. I just want them to see the importance of a local church. Love. The brotherhood. Fear God. In all you do, live in awe of God. Don't fear Caesar. Caesar is not God. Fear God because God is God. Make your ultimate allegiance to God. He ends it, honor the emperor. I don't want to get you excited. Just because he ends it doesn't mean I'm ending it, but he ends it here. Honor the emperor. And you say, well, that's really easy if the emperor is honorable. But what if he's not? Need I remind you that Nero was prone to conspiracy theories? He always thought someone was out to get him. He was a paranoid man. He thought his mother was trying to assassinate him. So he poisoned her. He fashioned himself as a musician and would make his whole court listen to him play. The historian Suatanias said that he played for so long women would fake going into labor. <laughs> what, a, what a dishonorable man. But one God placed in the seat of honor. Well, I didn't vote for him. It doesn't matter. You honor him. In a day where it's a source of entertainment to trash and dishonor authorities through talk shows and radio programs, you live distinctly. Some people take pride in the harshness at which they dishonor authority. And it's sinful. You can vote someone out of office without dishonoring him. Every Sunday after the sermon, we hold a panel discussion. It goes up online at, at 4 p.m. And today they're answering the question practically, well, how do we show honor to the emperor? Now... <laughs> I'm reading this text and, and um, I have a certain personality. I have a certain bent, okay? So I'm thinking, now at this, t at this point in Peter's letter, this would be a great time for Peter to roll out the Christian strategy for unseating Nero and overthrowing the Roman Senate. I mean, the world loves that. The world lives and breathes for that stuff. But Peter wasn't preoccupied with political reform. You know why? Because he understood the sovereignty of God. You know why earthly elections don't shake me? Because my hope is in a heavenly election. Do not buy into the lie that your story is tied up in the stories of the world. The rising and falling of nations, institutions, certain constitutional liberties. God is writing a bigger story. God wasn't surprised by Nero's rise to power or anyone else's. In fact, he orchestrated it. You see, Nero might be ruling, but God is overruling. So respect the government. Revere God. 
It's worth noting that the tense of the verb is present. Keep honoring the emperor. Keep honor. Well, when can I stop? Keep honoring the emperor until you see the full and final emperor, the truer and better emperor. While we are far away from home under an earthly government, we await a heavenly government. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus is coming. Living far away from home. A theology for living far away from home, chapter 2, verse 11a. An ethic for living far away from home, chapter 2, verse 11b through verse 17. We looked at both of these truths from 1 Peter 2 in light of first century readers and in light of our 21st century context. But don't leave me here. Now I want us to look at both of these truths in light of Jesus Christ. You are not the only one who had to live far away from home. You may have traveled 4,000 miles, but that's minimal in comparison to Jesus Christ who left his home in heaven to invade time and space, clothing himself in flesh. Here's the theology of Jesus living far away from home. He came to be the propitiation for our sin. He came to shoulder the wrath that you deserve. Why did he leave home? Because. Because of you. He came to rescue you. Well, well what about an ethic for living far away from home? Did Jesus have an ethic? Uh, oh, yes. He had a spotless ethic. A sinless ethic. He never once sinned. He never once transgressed. He came to live the life you should have lived. And you say, Kyle, it's, it's, it's just been evident. <laughs> Kyle, what happens if I fail? What happens if I give in to the temptations of the flesh? What happens if I do lose my mind during election season and, and fail to honor the emperor? What happens if I dirty my ethic? Well, I have some good news for you. Your salvation doesn't depend on how well you lived far away from home. It rests on how well he lived far away from home. There's only one man who kept this passage perfectly, and it was the Son of Man. When he obeyed, he always obeyed perfectly. When he disobeyed, and there were times he had to disobey his government. When he disobeyed, he disobeyed perfectly he disobeyed sinlessly he's the perfect law keeper and the perfect law breaker law keeper meaning God's laws law breaker meaning man's laws we may sin we may dishonor the emperor we may at times place our hope in some temporary political party but he never did as I was traveling through this text this week, I was just reminded how much I hate fighting my sinful nature and these passions that wage war in my soul. I am so tired of fighting my sinful nature. But the day is coming when I will no longer have to fight it ever again. Church, do you long for that day? A coming day 
when our great emperor shall return to take us home. It's interesting. Peter would not spend another day back home. He loved Galilee. But as he's writing this letter, he would never see it again. He wrote this letter from Rome, far, far away from home. It's believed he was martyred in Rome by Nero, who hung him upside down on a cross. Maybe you've seen the upside down cross. They call it St. Peter's cross. He said he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as his master. He died. What a pitiful story. He died without ever going home. He died far away from home. Or did he? When he died, he actually went home. He was only a sojourner in exile in Galilee. I don't, I don't know what you're missing about home, but I do know this. Home is just an echo. That food is just an echo of a feast you will experience when you really get home. That fun backwater town is, is really just an echo of the town that Jesus is building for you. When all is said and done, you have a thirst for home that is deeper and richer than that which an old couch or marble countertops or an old subdivision can supply. God's last words to Adam and Eve were, you have to leave. You have to go far away from home. But I will send someone to bring you back. Your heartache for home will be satisfied. Your heartache for home will be fulfilled. When you look into the beautiful eyes of Christ and he says, you are home. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.